You've turned on Sexy Marriage Radio, where the best sex is happening in the marriage bed. This episode is brought to you by CovenantSpice.com, the fun, safe, and affordable way for Christian couples to take their sex life to the next level. Here are your hosts, Dr. Corey Allen and Shannon Efridge. So it should come as no surprise that Sexy Marriage Radio's goal is to talk about sex. (laughs) And we put it in the context of marriage because we believe the best sex happening is in the marriage bed. And we want every married couple to experience the absolute best that you possibly can when it comes to your marriage bed. And if you missed one of the shows we had just recently... Uh, we had Dr. Bill Struthers on with us talking about how the brain and the wiring of sex that's there, that's not just male, female, it's kind of, I mean, I think if I remember right, it's one of the best ways he captured it was the, when you're talking about our sexuality, when it comes to the brain, it's a hundred percent biology, it's a hundred percent nature, it's a hundred percent nurture. So it's all of it. And it's a hundred percent our, our, our culture. And everything that we do and our choices that we've made and bad, good, all of that, all the above. And how all of that wires into who we are, what we do, what we do with people that we want to be with, who we're with. I mean, man, it's, it's amazing how complex everything is when you're talking about our life. Isn't it, Shannon? It, it truly is. And the thing that stood out to me most is something that Dr. Struthers said last time that I think that if women were to hear this from their husbands about themselves, it would be the sexiest thing that a husband could possibly say. Uh, He said that he doesn't consider himself necessarily heterosexual or anything. He considers himself Donna sexual because his wife's name is Donna. And and we all chuckled, Corey, I'm sure you consider yourself Pamela sexual. I consider myself Gregory sexual. Um, (laughs) And it, I just think that that is the mark of a real man is that when he can bond sexually with one human being, mm-hmm. that he isn't out there just looking to make love. He's looking to make love last. Right. Uh, and it reminds me of a, um, a campaign that I've seen going on on Twitter and stuff. All these different celebrities like Ashton Kutcher and Justin Timberlake holding up these signs that say real men don't buy women that they're trying to speak yep. out against human trafficking yep. and, and prostitution. And and it, I'm so delighted to get to have Dr. Bill Struthers back with us today because he's also a huge advocate against sexual exploitation, uh, against the use of pornography and human trafficking and all of that sort of stuff. But he comes at this uh, topic from a very unique angle. He doesn't just philosophize or theologize about it. He is a a biopsychologist. He has a PhD in biopsychology. He um, is a professor at Wheaton College, and I'm so jealous of all of the students who get to sit in on his (laughs) class because I've sat in on a couple of his lectures now and have been blown away every time. And again, I'm just so delighted to get to have him back for a second show where today we're going to be talking about gender differences. Now, I remember when I was at the American Association of Christian Counselors World Conference this past September in Nashville, I was speaking, but I had a few openings where I didn't have any commitments or anything. And when I saw Dr. Struthers was on the docket to speak that particular hour, I made a special effort to to be there early that morning to make sure and get a seat because I knew that the room would, would fill up super fast and it was standing room only. 
And as he unpacked this topic that I thought that I had a pretty good understanding of, I was totally fascinated. And so, Corey, I just want to thank you for uh, for dedicating two shows to this particular topic. And I want to welcome Dr. Bill Struthers back to the show. Bill, thanks for joining us. Shannon, thanks so much for having me. Corey, good to see you again. Yes. So <laughs> I just remember your allusion to ceiling tile, uh, to floor tiles or ceramic <laughs> tiles. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah, start definitely. there. <laughs> Yeah, that gets to some of the, uh, the, 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 the neuroscience research that I've been doing on looking at the distinction between sex and gender. And I think a lot of times people really conflate the two of them. They put them together. And, uh, you know, as, as a biopsychologist, as someone who, you know, considers myself more of a scientist than, like you said, a philosopher or, or a theologian, uh, you know, I, I, I really kind of say, well, sex and gender are, are two different things. Sex is about your reproductive status. Uh, it is about, you know, how you go about making babies and uh, and we can look at the different body parts and we can look at how your your embodied nature is sexed. But we also have this kind of curious thing, which is gender. And gender is uh, kind of the way that culture or individuals make sense of their sexuality. So uh, we might say, well, women are supposed to be refined. So if you're refined, that means you're feminine. Or if you are rugged, that's a masculine trait. Well, in many ways, that's the culture sort, sort of assigning value or assigning uh, purpose based on the, the sexed dimension. So, so gender is something that's much more fluid. It's much more sensitive to, to culture. And the culture creates the gender. And then we as individuals, we sort of take what the culture says about who we are and then we put it together in our in our minds and I think that that the tile reference that you're referring to is how we can think about the brain as having you know maybe these you know 500 or 5,000 tiles uh, with hormones and and culture sort of coloring the tiles in different way uh, with you know some hormones coloring some tiles dark and the culture bleaching some tiles and making them uh uh, making them white, and sometimes the culture and the hormones come together to make all these. Uh, and I think the phrase that I used was Fifty Shades of Grey," was sort of a, a wink, wink of the nudge, nudge to the uh, to, to the novel series. And so, when we think about ourselves uh, as gendered, as sexed people. We have all of these different terms, but gender really deals with the culture's narrative, and sex deals with the biological realities. So I remember you saying how historically we have had a tendency to think of male and female or masculine, masculine and feminine as black and white issues that are on opposite ends of the spectrum and that everyone is either black or white, male or female, masculine or feminine. And you basically said nothing could be further from the truth. So oh, definitely. I yeah, no I, yeah, definitely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, you know, that's, uh, but, but I think we do that because when we look at the genitals, you know, boys have boy parts and girls have girl parts. And so we think that, well, I guess these things have to be sort of categorically different in that you are either one or the other. But when you look in the brain, uh, what you find is, you know, personality traits are not one or the other. They can fall along a continuum. And so I like that analogy of 
well, you've got these two different types of dyes that are mixed in, and you you know you may end up with you know five drops of black ink and five drops of white ink, and you'll get a specific type of uh, of gray that comes out of it. But if you drop a couple more uh, dollops of black into the pre-existing gray, it'll get a little bit darker unless you put a few more dollops of white in. So it's this dynamic thing that can be changing over time as well. So if you don't find yourself being sort of all white or all black, there's this confusion like, well, I guess maybe I'm not a guy because I've got a little white in me here, or maybe I'm not really a woman because I noticed there's, I got some pretty dark shades of gray that are getting close to black over here. And so we begin to uh, kind of doubt our own masculinity or femininity or, uh, uh, and so that can result in a lot of interesting uh, problems for people. Well, and I remember sitting in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meetings, and I remember making the statement myself, and I remember hearing other people make the statement. I thought there must be something wrong with my wiring because I actually enjoyed sex. I actually wanted sex, and the, and mm -hmm. society had taught me that good girls don't want that. That you know that 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 must mean that I'm more masculine in some way, shape, or form. And I remember uh, at the the few times that I attended a mixed group. There were actually some men who sometimes would say, I suspect that maybe I'm a little bit more feminine in my sexual orientation because I don't necessarily look at porn, but I love a good romance novel and I love chick flicks. And, and that for them, there was something about the lore of the romance of a relationship that caused them to right. be addicted to a multitude of women. And so it, it, it kind of taught me that there really is a dialogue to be had that it's not that we are all either one way or the other. We really are a vast mixture of the two would you agree with that oh yeah and i think you know that's you know that's kind of the the problem is that you know our bodies are in fact sexed you know that they are and so the culture then has to deal with that reality but the the drive for sort of you know erotic genital pleasure is neither male nor female it's human it's you know I mean it it is it it's there it's there in both men and women, but cultures because they see men and women as different have sort of said well I guess you know that that drive for erotic pleasure is masculine, um, and the drive for you know romance is feminine, and so men who you know like the idea of romance well they sort of feel out of place or women who enjoy the sensuality of of sexuality um are are masculine and so what it does is it sort of challenges our way of thinking about ourselves unnecessarily i mean you do not have androgynous human beings i mean we we are sexed we have to be sexed in some way uh sometimes incompletely uh but when it comes to the way that we think about these these aspects of human relatedness, of sexuality, of intimacy, of romance, you know, guys who say they don't like stories uh, are full of baloney because they will go and they will watch the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> they'll go and they'll watch, you know, six, you know, fast and furious things and they'll watch all of the Monty Python movies and they'll know every line from the Monty Python movies. And women who, uh, you know, who, uh, who say, well, you know, I don't really enjoy sex. Um, you know, well, you know, when you kind of get them when they're in, in the mood and they're interested, uh, they actually do find it very pleasurable. So so I think we really need to challenge some of these conventions that men are just basically sex hounds, women are romance novel hogs, and uh, and, and say, well, you know, there, maybe there, is a, there, there might be something here underneath that neurologically, biologically, and culturally we are exacerbating some of these stereotypes. But right. we also need to step back and say, well... You know, perhaps these two things, rather than being two sort of 
sides, you know, two ends of the pendulum, um, can actually start to orbit around each other. You know, maybe there is something about the the romance of the woman that draws the man in, and he then in turn introduces her to the sensuality of the sexual, you know, of the of the the, the erotic moment. And so that these things, rather than sort of warring against each other or fighting against each other, can actually serve as like two planetary bodies whose gravitational pull has them in this constant orbit whereby they're sort of maximizing their force and their strength. I like that. Kind of like a dance. That's a great yeah, analogy. I remember, I remember last week I got an email from a woman. She had a really sore spot uh, over the whole stereotypical thing. She said in her marriage – it's very much the opposite in that her husband doesn't have a huge sex drive, whereas she feels as if she's the more uh, high libido person. And she was kind of questioning, you know, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with her? Dr. Struthers, I suspect that you would tell her there's nothing wrong with her. But what do you have to say to those couples who don't fit those traditional stereotypical molds of men always want sex and women never do? Please tell them that there there really are you know, those shades of gray that apply to them and that there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah, I think oftentimes, I mean, you know, I, I mean, occasionally there are there are problems. And that's when you need to see a physician to make sure that, you know, everything's OK with, with your bodies and. But I, but I do think, you know, what happens is, is we have these expectations about what we're supposed to be like sexually, that, you know, the, that the beer commercials and the romance novels and the porn that you see online, they're all sort of creating the set of expectations. So people have these sort of expectations about what they're supposed to be. And so, you know, the only two people that should care about uh, that sexual relationship between this woman and her husband is this woman and her husband. I mean, I don't get the right to tell her what kind of intimacy she's supposed to have in her marriage. That's something that the two of them negotiate within one another, that they find ways of sort of mutually submitting to one another, you know, loving one another in such a way where they hold the other's uh, you know, needs up as greater than themselves. And when they are, you know, ha have a desire that they, uh, that they submit it to the other one. Uh, so I think that, you know, social comparison is, is a bad way of thinking about your sexual uh, relationship with your partner. So it's normal. There's nothing wrong with it. And uh, and I'd say, you know, just as long as the two of you are kind of OK with the, the relationship, that's all that really matters. I think comparisons are poison, period, no matter yeah, how you look at it. Mm -hmm. yep. And, I, th and so I think that's what a lot of. You know, and, you know, I'll, I'll sort of stick with the caricature because, you know, men, you know, compare their wives to all of these other airbrushed, you know, images of women in the culture and women, you know, sort of compare their husbands to all these sort of romanticized versions of, you know, the, the, the man that they want in their head or the romance novels. And so what we need to do is we really need to say, well, how can we step back? And, and, and rethink the way that we are evaluating our partner, uh, the way that our partner is evaluating us, and other ways where we can make this marriage, this unique relationship, sort of freed from the shackles of what the culture says it needs to be in order to be something that's to be honored. I love it. That's great. So talk, talk to the, the people who are a little concerned out there that, you know, there's a lot of times that women will say to me, that they find other women attractive, it, that, that yeah. they find that sexually arousing in another woman's body. It doesn't mean that she's ever had a, a female to female encounter. It doesn't mean that she would ever want one. It's just she finds that visual image 
stimulating. And then I also have learned that there are men on the planet who would say the same thing, that they're actually more sexually aroused mentally by the image of another man's body, but yet he's he considers himself heterosexual. He's happily married to his wife. He wouldn't dream of straying, especially in a homosexual direction. Can you address people who maybe do have a little bit of confusion in their brain of, is there something wrong with me that the image that arouses me isn't the traditional heterosexual image of the opposite sex body? Yeah, I think, you know, that that's an interesting question because, you know, from some of the research that I've, I've looked at and, um, and outlined in my book, I think that what you, what you find is that, uh, you know, when you get women and they, you put them in an fMRI or you put them in a brain scanner and you have them look at naked images or sort of heterosexual porn, um, which finds the women will spend an awful lot of time looking at the women. They don't, you know, and you look at the eye tracking studies, they actually are very concerned about the woman's body as opposed to, you know, you would expect that we know that the men are looking at the women's bodies, uh, but the women are also looking at the women's bodies as well. Uh, so, so just to to see another person's body and their sexuality and to find that arousing is not an uncommon thing. Um, I think in our culture, there's a lot of sort of uh, anxiety around being attracted to someone of the same sex, especially if you don't identify as bisexual or as uh, as homosexual. And so we invent these kind of terms like man crushes. You know, when guys see other men, that they find themselves <laughs> romances, uh, romances. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they find themselves awkwardly sort of. Uh, naming them because what we've done is we've overly eroticized many other dimensions of human affections. You know, I, uh, you know, m my daughter, uh, I, I think she's incredibly beautiful. I know that she has a body uh, and she charges me, my body physically up, but I don't genitalize it. Uh, and so I just, I make it be the love that a father has for his daughter. And when I find that there's a man that I notice that he's a strong, powerful man and I find myself you know, kind of aroused by that. I take that as a brotherly love. But in our culture, uh, and, and women, the same thing, you know, that women, you know, find themselves aroused by an older man who, you know, reminds them of their father. And they think, oh, I guess that must mean that I'm, you know, sexually attracted to him. Uh, or uh, if they find a, a woman that they find themselves being sort of aroused by, that they genitalize it and they make it sort of, well, I guess I must be a lesbian. And I think what we need to do is we need to step back and say, it's okay for us to be aroused. And not all forms of arousal are inherently erotic. Sometimes they are just kind of seeing something that's beautiful and being aroused by it. Not for the purpose of mating with it or humping it or making a baby with it, but actually just acknowledging it as beautiful. And what happens and many times, it. yeah, just appreciate, exactly, just appreciating it and letting it be what it is. But our culture, because it's hypersexual, doesn't really want to provide any space for anything here. So for a man who would say, well, I'm heterosexual, but I find myself, you know, being strangely drawn, you know, and attracted to another man and actually finding myself aroused by him, people would say, well, I guess you're bisexual. Or maybe you're just a homosexual and you just need to kind of adopt that as your, as your standard. Or for women who find themselves, you know, attracted to another woman, um, they'll say, well, I guess you're a lesbian or you're bisexual or you're pansexual. I don't know, uh, polysexual. Uh, so I think that what you what we, we need to do is we need to really move away from overly eroticizing all emotional affections. Uh, it's okay to be drawn to your children. It doesn't make you a pedophile. It doesn't make you a, a molester. What matters is how we choose to act on our affections, that there are some boundaries that we don't go over. And in doing so, you know, you, you may find yourself being attracted to a person other than your spouse. 
But if you don't act on them, those affections will be taken away eventually. I, I love that you interject that we all have a choice as to what we do yeah. with any type of arousal. Um, like as a mom, I can certainly speak to this. I have a, a son and a daughter. And, you know, as my daughter has just blossomed into full-blown womanhood, I mean, you'd have to be blind not to notice how beautifully slender and attractive her body has become. But in no way, shape, or form does that make me a lesbian. And I can't help but notice how masculine and, and broad-shouldered and tall and good-looking my son has become. But that does not mean that I like younger men or that I'm a pedophile or, or would be, you know, uh, someone who would molest their own children. But for us to just appreciate and value uh, the physical characteristics, or maybe it's a personality characteristic or whatever in someone else, but not feel the need to jump their bones in any way, shape, or form, I wish that every person on the planet could grasp that concept because... <laughs> You think about the ripple effects that would have on society, there wouldn't be all of this uh, sexualization of, of children and, and young women. And it, it, the world would be a much healthier, safer place for people to dwell if we all knew that we could control, that we do have a choice over what we, uh, what we do with any arousal that we may feel. I, I, you know, I, I agree with that completely. And I think the choice is really found in the way that we think about other human beings. You know, if you think about, you know, other human beings as uh, as potential mates or uh, or as, you know, potential competitors for mates, then what's going to happen is if, if you're a woman, every man is going to be a potential mate and every woman is going to be a potential competitor. And, and of course, but, you know, for men, you know, every you know, every woman they see is a potential mate. So you see, you know, men talking about, you know, MILFs or something like that because they're seeing their friends, mothers as a mating partner rather than as the mother of their friend. Uh, and so I think the movement towards Mrs. Using, Robinson syndrome. Yeah, kind of Mrs. Rob Mrs. Robinson kind of thing. And I think that if we if we begin to start seeing, you know, and I like using the language of the, the family of humanity, <laughs> you know, that really when I look out and I see all these women, they are actually sisters in the family of humanity. And brothers don't do some things with their sisters that they do with their wives. And uh, I, and to think about you know, it's just, so I think that the familial language that, you know, and you do see this in some cultures. I mean, in some cultures, they have sort of a tribal familial set of language, and that restricts like what you can do with who. But we live in a very individualistic culture, which means that it kind of only matters about you. And even family's really been fragmented in our culture, too. So as a result, we sort of lost that ability to see other people as family members. And, uh, and, you know, sisters and brothers, they don't do that with each other. You know, the unique relationship that comes in, and I would, and by the way, I would argue that women who know how to look rightly at men as their brothers, in many ways are much more attractive to men than the best porn star. And men who know how to look at all women as sisters are going to be much more attractive to women than the best, uh, you know, uh, the best porn star out there. I would totally agree. I mean, just to hear men talk about how attracted they are to their wives, that's very attractive to other women. But again, we control what we do with that arousal. We channel it toward our own spouses. Exactly. Uh, something, something that you said, um, a little story that you told in Nashville totally fascinated me about a man who can actually see himself as a woman but operate as a lesbian and therefore right, fit yeah. into society. Will you unpack that for our listeners? Because I think it is freaking fascinating. Sure. Um, the 
a lot of what I do is talk about sort of the, the mosaic brain and how different parts of the brain are responsible for different aspects of our sexuality. So, for example, there are, you know, regions in the hypothalamus that produce the hormones and are hormone sensitive that are directly related to uh, motivation. So, you know, for example, if you take a man and you castrate him, there's no testosterone, he's not very sexually motivated. We can find the part of his brain that sort of receives that testosterone that would make him motivated towards, uh, uh, towards reproduction. And so you've got other parts of the brain that are responsible for arousal and some for coordinating behaviors and some for, uh, you know, kind of you know, making the decision to release the behavior. But, um, but one thing that's become really interesting, especially is fascinating when you look at the language that we use in our culture. So we have the, uh, the gay, lesbian, transgendered, bisexual, intersexed, asexual, queer, questioning kind of, you know, all those, little, all those letters in that, that acronym. And one of the more interesting ones, I think, is that of, of being transgendered. So a transgendered person is a person who uh, sort of identifies as a member of the, the sex that is opposite that of their biological embodied sex. So and people will say, well, you know, I'm I'm a, a woman trapped in the body of a man or I'm a, a man trapped in the body of a woman, uh, you know, and so, so that, that's the transgendered community. And uh, and also we think about how that in some ways is about gender identity, but not about sexual orientation. So, you know, a gay man will say, I'm a man, I identify as a man, but I identify as a man who is attracted to other men. And lesbians will say, I'm a woman, I identify as a woman, but I am attracted to, uh, to women. So I think the example that you're talking about is, you know, how you can really complicate things and it can really cause people to really step back and say, what's going on here? Well, if, if I am transgendered, as I have the body of a man, but I, feel, but I identify as a woman who is in the body of a man, that makes me transgendered. And if I identify as a woman and I find myself sexually aroused by women, well, that would be a lesbian. So a transgendered lesbian who is trapped in the body of a man from the outside looks like a heterosexual self-identifying man. But those psychological experiences are incredibly different. And that was the point that I was trying to make because gender identity is very important. And oftentimes when we don't, we find ourselves not conforming to gender norms, you know, as a man, I'm not very competitive. Uh, I, I like, you know, weepy romance novels, right? Well, I, I guess there's something not manly about me. So maybe I need to get in touch with my feminine side, or maybe really I'm a woman who is kind of trapped in the body of a man. And I think that's kind of what I was getting at with that comment. So basically, no matter how one feels about how they think or function, it, it, it's all okay. There's, there's nothing particularly wrong with anyone. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, I, I, not necessarily. I think what, I, what I'm saying is we have all these different layers in the way that we describe our sexuality. So there's, there's kind of a, one set of language that we use when we describe um, our orientation, right? Gay, lesbian, bisexual. Uh, fetishes, I think, would be another one. Uh, and then there's another set of language when we talk about our embodied nature. We have male and female, and we have uh, intersexed uh, as well. There's uh, actually another uh, way that the genitals can form, which would be not fully male, but not fully female. So they're kind of in the, in the middle. So we would talk about a person being intersexed. 
uh, for, or for example, you may have heard about women who were exposed to hormones uh, during early development. And so, you know, their faces, they have they, their shoulders, their bone structure, they have breasts, the hips, all of that, all feminine, but they have a penis. Uh, you know, th think crying game for those of you who are maybe over the age of 30. Um, sometimes in the, uh, in the, the adult industry, they're referred to as she-males because they have penises. Uh, but everything else about them is female. Genetically, they're female. You know, all the other secondary sex traits are there. So I think there's another set of language where we talk about the embodied nature, but there's also this other language when how do we identify it? Uh, am I an effeminate man? Am I a transgendered woman? Uh, am I, you know, a tom girl or, or tomboy girl? Uh, you know, am I, I mean, so there's there's all these kinds of other terms that we use for these many different dimensions of our sexuality. And I think when we use them appropriately, they can be very helpful, but sometimes they can create a lot of confusion for people as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the married couple who yeah. one of them feels as if, well, they shouldn't stay in this marriage because they've come to realize one of these factors. But when right. I say, you know, hopefully they'll understand there's nothing wrong with them. What I guess I'm really trying to say is hopefully you understand that you have the power to choose who you commit yourself to that you do not have to be driven by some sort of biological or sociological or cultural drive. You get to choose who you, who you live with, who you mate with, who you spend the rest of your life with, who you commit yourself to. Would, would you say that, that that will overrides all these other factors? Well, I think that there's, uh, you know, certainly there's an element of choice involved. And, you know, I think in the, in the intro, Corey, you mentioned this, you know, that's kind of a 100% nature, 100% nurture. You know, it's all about your brain. It's all about the kind of the culture. But it is also all about the choices that you make as well. And, you know, I can, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not able to change my orientation and to make myself, you know, attracted to a member of the opposite sex. Or maybe I was always attracted to a member of the same sex, but I married into a heterosexual relationship regardless. You know, I mean, well, you know, I think what happens is a lot of people have to come to terms with, you know, what kind of life do I want to live? How do I want to govern my sexual urges? And, uh, you know, and I could say, well, you know, you're a heterosexual man. It's expected that you will be attracted to other women, and therefore you should follow those. And once your wife stops looking attractive, or you know, if you found a better man, go ahead and dump the man. Or if you find yourself being attracted to another woman, go ahead and leave your husband and leave your kids, and you know, just you know, sort of self um, self-identify now as a lesbian later on in life. I think you know we're all offered choices, uh, and what we need to decide is we need to decide what are the things that we are going to commit to. Are we going to commit to relationships? Are we going to commit to, um, you know, patterns of sexual arousal? Are we going to commit to uh, political or theological or philosophical or psychological principles or, or ideals? Uh, and that's where I think you really need to have that conversation. Because, you know, if, if, if I were to be, kind of getting back to your original example, if I were to be a transgendered lesbian living in the body of a man, People would look at that and they'd say, okay, we don't have a big big problem with that. Just don't talk about it an awful lot. Well, uh, that would be kind of a curious thing to ask me to do. Um, and uh, and I think if a person would say, well, you know, I'm attracted to a member of the same sex, but I'm in a heterosexual marriage, um, what am I going to do? Do I value the... Uh, the institution of marriage, or do I value the theological, the religious, you know, code of sexual ethics 
more than I value my own sexual gratification, more than I you know, want to value my own way of thinking about the integrity of myself as a human being, sort of from top to bottom, everything being you know, aligned and perfectly congruent. That's a very different kind of conversation uh, that people most of the time are not willing to have because they don't really have the right language to know even how to have that conversation. So that's what I want to do is get people thinking about, is there a better way to talk? Is, is the issue really that you're unhappy in, the, in your marriage and you found your emotional needs being met in a member of the same sex? So now you just say, oh, I've always been you know, a lesbian to begin with. Therefore, this marriage is a sham. Well, you're probably getting out of the marriage for reasons other than you know, your dormant lesbianism or your dormant homosexuality. And that's, I think, a more productive conversation to have rather than to find the easiest most politically correct way of destroying your marriage. So basically you are all about creating verbal tools for people's tool belts to be able to have conversations about being authentic with themselves, being authentic with other people, uh, focusing on what's genuinely important to them in the way of relationship, in the way of the institution of marriage, in the way of, of keeping society strong. I know that Corey and I just really believe that marriage is kind of the foundational bedrock of society. And so we feel as if what we do as counselors, coaches, as radio show hosts is try to promote that value, which we hold so high. And that's just a great, healthy sex life within marriage. And so in a nutshell, Bill, what is it that you, what drives you with this work that you do with the college, with your teaching, with your research, with your writing of these books and your lecturing, if you were to encapsulate what you want Boy, to impart to the world. Boy, asking a professor to put anything in a nutshell is, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a dangerous thing. You know, the nutshell will probably become another 30-minute talk. Um, you know, you know if, if, I'm, if I'm completely honest uh, with you, I would say, you know, I, I'm a person of faith. You know, I'm a, I'm a devout Christian. Uh, and so, uh, but, I, but I'm also, you know, someone who, uh, who, who kind of is trained as a scientist. And for me, it sort of all fits together because when I step back and I look at, uh, you know, what do people really need to thrive? What do they really need to flourish? You know, some people can flourish in marriage. What do those flourishing marriages look like? Some people don't need to be married. What do those things look like? As sexual creatures, how can we think about flourishing going beyond the sort of the marital bed, so to speak, but recognizing there is something special about that marriage bed because that marriage bed creates the place where life can be formed. When you go outside of the marriage bed, life is now formed in a, in a very uh, dangerous community because when a, when a husband and a wife come together in the marriage bed, presumably they're creating a safe place for any children to be brought into. When you just have people having sex with whoever they want, well, now we run into uh, you know unsafe circumstances for children to be brought into. And I think marriage provides the safest place, the, the place where you can maximize human flourishing for new life. And so I think that's why I have such a high view of marriage. I have a high view of sexuality. I have a high view of persons and flourishing. So uh, that's maybe a, maybe a walnut-sized nutshell, maybe not a peanut-sized shell. Uh, but I think yeah, that's and, why I do what I do. It's my faith commitment. It's my commitment. Yeah. It's my commitment to the integrity that. of science and the way of really engaging in civil discourse too. Yeah, and, and I do love the way that you bring it down to a layman's level, that we can totally absorb all of this and not be blown away by the science lecture because it, it's just a fascinating topic. But if I were to add a layer to that, 
I would say that it's not just providing safety for new life to be created for babies to be raised in. Cause you know, we only raise our babies for 18 to 20 years if we're right. lucky and then they're out the door. I think that it also creates that, that safe place for emotional flourishing and spiritual mm -hmm. flourishing and relational flourishing and, and mental flourishing. When you have a partner that you can really uh, dialogue with and go deep with. And yeah, Corey, you've been sitting in the peanut gallery. What do you think? Man, I, again, <laughs> Any, you know, Dr. Struthers, I'm, I feel like I'm in class. So no, 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 you're, not a boring professor. No, right? you're talking, you're talking <laughs> to somebody that if I could have figured out a way to make money as a student, when I was going through my schooling, I would still be in school because <laughs> I just loved it. You know, this stuff is just fascinating because of what it, what it's, what jumps out off this whole radio show to me with both times we've had time with you, Dr. Struthers is it's not as simple as we want to try to make it sometimes to make ourselves more comfortable and feel okay about things. But there is still a uniqueness and a specialness to each of us that allows us to be uniquely who we are and to know that the things that happen, the arousal, the thoughts, that it, it, that's not as simple as, oh, that made me aroused, so therefore I must act. It, no, it's you can, you can parse things down to to who we really are and the more we understand ourselves, man, the more limitless things can become. Yeah. And that's the great paradox, you know, that in some ways this is really, really, really simple. And in other ways, it is so incredibly complex <laughs> that even with, you know, an entire planet of supercomputers, we would never have the computing power to, to fully explain. Right. It. And so, you know, how, how do you find a way to live in that paradox? And to at least engage in, you know, conversation that can honor people's dignity, but also honors human flourishing and the way yep. that, you know, sexuality can really be maximized and relationships can be maximized as well. Shane, you made a great point, you know, about that layer of, you know, the, 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 the husband and the wife being bound together, you know, that that creates a unique kind of flourishing. Uh, but, you know, but if I'm completely honest, I'm going to step back and say, you know what, for those for those of you who aren't married, you can flourish as a single person and it will look a little bit different. For those of you who, you know, have lost your spouse, you know, and you're now a widow or a widower, you can still flourish in a way that looks different when you're not married, but it's still, you know, a wonderful and beautiful thing as well. Yeah. And the, the paradox, I love the idea, just the paradox of relationship, the paradox of marriage, because, yeah. you know, that's in a nutshell to me, that's the whole, I want to be with you but don't tell me what to do, you know? So we constantly go back and forth between those things. So man, Dr. Struthers, this has been fabulous once again, hasn't it, Shannon? It has. I would love to be a fly on the wall of so many homes who both spouses listen to the show. I would just be fascinated by what kind of dialogue this brings up for them. Yes, and Because my guess is there's a lot of especially Christian couples out there who have struggled with some of these questions of gender or, or orientation or sex. And they've never had the vocabulary. And so, right. Dr. Struthers, thank you for just sharing with us some of your vocabulary words and phrases and expressions and concepts and theories, because it, it really does just kind of, it, it takes the walls off of this tiny little room that we have dwelt in in regards to this topic. And it's opened our eyes and our ears to a whole new world. And, and we just, yeah, we're blown away. I thank knew we you. would be. Told you, Corey. <laughs> yep, you were, you were correct. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for having me on. I know you guys have probably got to run, but uh, thanks again this for having me. This has been me. great. 
Well, you this bet. Thank, thank you, you for those of you that are taking some time out to listen to us. I want to say thanks. And you honor us every week when you join us. We'd love to hear what you think. Send us an email at feedback at sexymarriageradio.com. And i got to send a shout-out to covenantspice.com, our sponsor. If you go to their site and get something, use the word radio, you get 10% off your order. So wherever you are, I hope that things turn great quickly if they're not already. Thanks for spending time with us. Yep. God bless.